Welcome back to What's Your Bliss, part of the Anything But Credible Network. My name is Thomas Ragland, and I'm delighted to be coming back to you another week. This week's guest is the CEO of Voice Matters and the author of Your Voice Matters, A Guide to Speaking Soulfully When It Counts. It's Lori Smith. Lori, welcome, and what's your bliss? Thank you. My bliss feels like my life these days. Uh, What that means is... I'm doing work that I love during the day that feeds my soul. And then that is feeding my life during the day. I'm helping people find their voice and stand in their power and make their unique impact in the world by being themselves. And uh, I'm building a life with my fiance and partner. And then during the evenings, I bring characters to life. Uh, and it feels like I've spent my entire life pulling everything together in order to be exactly where I am now. But it feels like it's all coming together, uh, which is, yes. I'm sure, uh, not just a blissful feeling, but uh, probably a relief as well. Yeah, I think I'm more in contact with the bliss um, because as an entrepreneur and an actor, the relief moments last for a little while when you get the new client there's a feeling of relief and then you step into the work which is more about the bliss and the same kind of thing holds true when getting cast as a character there's relief oh yay I got the role and then oh now I need to climb the mountain of how am I going to do it which is full of a lot of aliveness and a lot of bliss sure absolutely Well, tell us a little bit about kind of that day-to-day right now. You said that you're lifting people's voices up and and helping them find their path and find their voices. What is that that looking like to you these days? I've narrowed down what I do to being a public speaking and leadership coach. And for public speaking, I have a program that I love running that's a group program with a little bit of one-on-one time. And what I love about working on public speaking in groups the way I do it is we go very deep. I believe that we're all born with charisma. We all have presence. It's not something that some of us have and others don't. And the world has actually trained us to cover it up, to try to be like everybody else and to suppress our natural passions and life force. And My work is really about helping to remove the patterns that society taught us in order to reconnect with the kind of vibrance and aliveness that we came into the world with, and then help connect that to some sort of why or sense of purpose that's actually larger than ourselves. And that presence begins where that primal body stuff that we came in with and that purpose meet. Presence begins where primal and purpose meet. I'm fascinated by kind of that uh, notion where primal and presence meet. I'm, I'm curious how that how that came to be for you or how that presented itself to you. Um, how did that become what you were seeking to bring out in others? That's a great question. I knew it intuitively and would kind of connect with it and then veer off from it and then find my way back. And it, I've been in business for 13 years now. For 12 of those years, it took me many, many, many more words to attempt to explain <laughs> what I believe. <laughs> yeah. And then about a year ago, I worked with a transformational branding strategist. And I specifically said to her, I'm pretty good verbally because that's my gift. That's my native soul language. Yet when I'm trying to distill it down to put it into writing, I need help. And while working with her, I was doing a meditation after doing yoga and into my head fell the sentence, presence begins where primal and purpose meet. And I sat up and wrote it down and then went back to laying down and doing the the yoga nidra meditation. on the mat because I knew I didn't want to lose that one. It's, I feel like it's how I've been seeing the world that there, 
there is an aliveness and a vocal resonance that lives in the body and then is translated to the world through the voice with a little help from the mind. And it's beyond most people's wildest dreams. They'll see an actor on a stage and think, oh, that person has so much presence. I wish I had that. And I've been sitting here for 13 years going, you can have it too. I can help you. How do you tap into the primal piece, especially as you as you mentioned before, our society is essentially beating us down to to be you know conforming to to not have that voice to be a cog rather than the machine itself right how do you tap into that primal voice either for yourself but also how do you, how do you bring that out in others i have a a seven step method that i walk people through it's called the vocal presence path and when i'm speaking in places like this i know that uh, neuroscientifically, we love threes. So I like to give people kind of the three most important things to connect to. Intend, breathe, energize. Intend means setting an intention when we're about to speak, whether that be in a meeting, on a podcast, or on the TED Talk stage setting an intention for what we want to create, what energy or what emotion do we want to create in the room? That's very different from how our inner critics would go about it. Our inner critics want to avoid possible landmines, mm. which is like going river rafting and trying not to hit the rocks. We're actually much more likely to crash into the rock and fall out of the raft than if we set an intention at the beginning I want a wild adventurous ride or I want a smooth fluid ride. So it's doing that when speaking. Breathing is like the gasoline or the battery that makes everything else go. When people have told us, don't be too big, don't be too much, don't be too emotional. One of the key ways that we hold that back is by suppressing our breathing which then becomes an unconscious habit. And when we suppress our breathing, our passion, our aliveness gets suppressed right along with it. So when I say breathe, it's about nourishing our bodies with a lot more breath than we might do habitually. And definitely more than most of us do if we're teetering into fight, flight, or freeze when we're speaking. And then energizing is about hugging the room with our energetic arms, sending our energy out to the edges of the space that we're in and holding them in that intention that we set at the beginning. And I know energy is a, for some people, it's an easy topic to wrap our head around. And for others, they know that they recognize charisma when they see it. But the idea of, well, how do I wrap my energy is hard to process for some people. So I offer it kind of like a coin. The middle of the coin, the meat, is energizing and hugging the room. One of the sides of the coin is to intend to include everyone rather than subconsciously kind of trying to hide or hide in one person. The other side that really helps people, the flip side of the coin, is giving ourselves permission to be seen and heard and felt by the whole room, rather than thinking that we're only allowed to take up one-tenth of the space in the room that we're in. And for a lot of the people involved in missions that I work with, Remembering it's not giving yourself permission to be seen and heard and felt just for the sake of whatever. It's giving ourselves permission to be seen and heard and felt for the sake of that why, that intention that we set that's larger than everyone in the room. What do you think holds that back? Is that, is it fear? Is it 
Uh, again, is that societally created in us? I mean, there are people certainly that do seem to your point to have a knack to have that natural charisma. And I see it almost, um, you know, especially in hearing you talk about it. I, for some reason, I flashed to like, uh, like a role-playing game character, right? Where you can build up your charisma. There are ways to do that. And there are paths to do that. And maybe you're naturally gifted in another area. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, what what holds us back from, from giving ourselves that permission um, or, or holding that energy back? I feel like part of it is in our in our muscular cellular history that may even go back generations that once upon a time, if we stood out, we might be ejected from the tribe and that would mean certain death. So standing in front of a crowd and sharing our ideas or even having an important conversation that matters can feel like there's danger with it. So that kind of living in our histories and living in ourselves is part of it. And then the other part is that society is modeling this more suppressed way of breathing and holding back energy. So as children, as we're watching our parents and our family members through mirror neurons and things like that, we're, we're mirroring how they do it. So it's being passed down that way. And then the third piece that comes to mind right now is when I speak in crowds, I'll often say, raise your hand if you've never been told that you're too much. Raise your hand if you've never been told you're too emotional. Raise your hand if you've never been told a way to fit in more and no one will raise their hand. Mm -hmm. Everybody has received some message of don't be too big, don't be too much, don't be too emotional. When I think of of that piece, I also am struck by the potential, and maybe you'll disagree with me and that's okay, but the, but the potential gender connotations around that as well. Because I do feel like women probably hear that at least more often in our society than, than men do. Have you found that in working with folks as well? I have. Um, I do believe that men, we both get the message, don't be too emotional men are allowed sure. to be angry anecdotally. So mm. when they're saying, don't be too emotional, you're not as a male allowed to be tender. Yeah. You are allowed to stand up and yell. Um, and as a woman, it is more common that all of the emotions, you know, it means not any emotion ever do not yeah. be emotional. Yeah. I really love that you said that because I, 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 I've never heard it phrased that way, but it makes so much sense. Uh, like the idea of tenderness versus anger, that being the appropriate level or the inappropriate level of that society allows us. And then yes, of course, for, for women, it means you just have to be logical. You have to be a robot. You cannot have the emotion at all. Um, I'm also wondering, you know, you have described yourself as, a, as an empath and I'm wondering how that plays into uh, the energy in a room and, and whether that changes kind of your, uh, your approach approach or even how you, how you coach people. <laughs> now you may have tapped into my bliss within the bliss. Perfect. Um, I believe that empaths are really taught that there is something wrong with us, that the things that we're sensing in a room, I have many clients where people told them they were crazy because of the ability to feel what was going on underneath the words. So myself and many of my clients will step in front of a crowd and we can be overwhelmed by the amount of emotion and the amount of sensory information coming in. However, when we learn to breathe through it and expand our energy to the edges of the room, then we become like, an empathic air conditioner, taking the energy coming toward us and converting it into the fire that fuels transformation in the room. Mm -hmm. And that it may even be slightly easier for an empath to access their charisma and to energize the space 
when they've learned to befriend all of that sensation rather than trying to fight it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And what you've done is create essentially what I would see is like an energetic boundary um, where you're not, you're not necessarily putting up a, a wall, but really you're, you're saying I have to filter things that are coming through. Yeah. Filtering things almost like I see it in my mind as kind of a semi permeable yeah. energetic boundary where you allow in anything that serves the highest good of everyone in the room. Right. And you're filtering out to the best of your ability or that you know, energetic boundaries, ability, anything that doesn't serve stays out. And I learned from someone that I worked with that it's very helpful to develop practices that help us ground ourselves clear emotionally, energetically, physically, anything that we've taken on and then re-protect. So when finished speaking, empaths tend to need some time to digest the experience and that's part of what's happening is letting good, if anything stuck to me, mm -hmm. if anything came in that I no longer need in this moment, coming up with some sort of a practice of releasing whatever it is. And I love the image of releasing it down through the feet so that it mm -hmm. becomes like fertilizer, Yeah, which we can think fertilizer is negative. It's not negative. It's something that we may not want attached to us. And yet it's very nourishing for whatever else wants to rise from the fertilizer in the future. Yeah. When you, when you speak of release in that way, I also see it as uh, a repurposing, right? Because it's not, it's not completely getting rid of it. And it's not acknowledging that those things are going to come in and those things are going to impact us, especially if we're empathic, but it's saying, I have to repurpose this energy and, and this experience into something that is going to allow growth, whether that's for me or for somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. That uh, getting away from labels like the energy is bad or the emotions right. are bad and thinking, is it, is it what I need in this moment? And if not, I'll repurpose it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really, I really love that. It's I, I I've also, uh, I found myself in, in a similar situation where I've essentially experiences in general and just not assigning that value to them because it, when you assign value, then you, you perseverate, you, uh, you are looking for what was good, what was bad, et cetera. And when you can be a little more neutral and it's hard, <laughs> it's not easy to do certainly. And it, it can change day to day, but what it's allowed me to do is say, this is just a neutral experience and this is why it's making me feel this way or, or the, the way that I, the, the way that I can find my path forward. Yeah, absolutely. And that labeling things as bad is that is what the inner critics and what I call mm. the soul suckers tend to do. There's yeah. sensation coming in, there's energy, and our soul suckers are the part that will interpret all of that as bad and label us wrong or flawed for feeling it. It was probably about five years into doing this work that I realized almost every client I had was convinced that everybody else was different when speaking. And they were the only one who had sweaty palms or, you know, heart beating faster or stronger or some kind of energy happening that they couldn't quite explain. Everybody that I was working with was thinking I'm flawed. I'm the only one. So I better suppress this bad mm. stuff and try to pretend it's not there. So a big reframe is what if all that stuff is good stuff right. or what if that is simply like the raw, raw materials, the color right. palette that you can paint with. It's neither good nor bad. It's just stuff. Yeah. And you get to harness it and do what you want with it. Release some of it, use other parts of it. When I, I, it goes back to what you said earlier, which was this idea of using that then to wrap everybody else in it and, and, and allow their energy to, to feed into that and to, and to be a kind of a part of that rather than seeing 
I think it, it almost comes out and I, I, I have trouble with this myself because I do love public speaking. And so that's something that I've, I've really loved doing forever. And so I don't know that I, I think this way, but I feel like others do, which is that it's almost an us versus them mentality. Like you get up and there's, there's an adversarial nature to speaking for some people where it's like, I am, uh, you know, I, I'm seen as this expert, but really I'm, I'm trying to convince them or I'm trying to persuade them or whatever versus working together like that that harmony is missing yeah a harmony and a conversation yeah uh i remember once working with someone who said she really loved speaking when the chairs were in a circle Mm. because that felt more like it was set up for a conversation and i said well what if there is still a circle it's just flipped from a horizontal circle to a vertical circle So the energy is coming from the audience, going through you, and then going back to the audience. It's still a circle. It's still a conversation. Not let me prove myself or let me do a monologue over here. I mean, I know I come from a theater background, so a monologue (laughs) is actually a conversation when you do it well, but you're not talking at people. You're having a conversation with them. And their responses are coming to you primarily if you have the microphone and they don't, they're, they're speaking back in all sorts of nonverbal ways, smiles, nods, giggles, raising their hand, things like that. I, um, there are a couple of thoughts, (laughs) a couple of pathways that we can go, but I guess I'll start right there, which is when, when those things are happening, when, when you're getting reactions and, and let's say they're even good reactions, or at least reactions that we can interpret as, as being part of the overall conversation. Um, how do you help folks who, who really don't have that, uh, that background, that experience to not kind of get lost in that too? Because I think sometimes maybe I'm wrong here too, but I, I would imagine there's sometimes there's that seeking of validation as well. And once you get it, then it's like, well, well, now what do I do? How do you, how do you keep people from getting lost? I guess. Yeah. I will help people come back to that intention that they set. And when, if I'm working with them through the designing of what they say, the intention becomes a path of where is your audience likely to be emotionally when you start and what's the journey that you want to take them on. And the more left brain stuff that most of us are used to, that emotional journey is paired with what do you want them to know or be capable of by the time you're done and to design it in that way. And then that intention becomes like a stake in the ground or a North star or your compass so that you can have a moment in the middle of a presentation with your crowd and not go down a road that's too far off of the journey that you wanted to take them on. Almost like going mountain climbing. There are many different ways up the mountain to go hiking up the mountain. But if you go too far, you may never actually make it to the top. Right. Yeah. And if, and if you're expending energy in areas that you don't need to be, uh, similarly, like if you're, if you're focused on the wrong things, same thing, you're not going to make it up the mountain, um, or it's going to take a lot longer to get there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm curious when, I guess a couple of things you, you mentioned a, a strong, uh, lifelong theater background. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, just a lot, a life, a life full of leadership and, and kind of being that person who, who di- you know, directs other people literally or, or figuratively, um, manages people kind of helps bring that out of them. Is that something that was instilled in you at a young age or something that was, was brought out in you by, by your support network or, or something you just happened to stumble upon? I think it may be something that I was born to come here and do. And yet I fought it for a very, very long time. Uh, My first coach ever, and I, she called me a leader and I thought she was crazy. (laughs) And then she kind of pointed out a couple of the things that I had done in my life up to that point. And I realized that I was a reluctant leader. Mm. I didn't want to be doing it. And yet, you know, I was made the point guard in basketball. 
And I actually did love that, but I still didn't see it as a leader team captain and point guard. Oh, but no, 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 I'm not, I'm not a leader. Yeah. And then directing plays at a young age, coaching softball teams at a young age. And with that coach, she helped me identify that I was resisting it and thinking that I wasn't a leader and then to embrace my definition of leadership, which is not a man in a three-piece suit. I believe that we are all leaders in our own lives if we make the choice to be leaders in our own lives. And my image for the planet is everyone showing up as a leader, everyone at full voice, and then creating a kind of global harmony together by every voice connected to that intention or that bigger why, collaborating together in order to come to harmony or to create the changes that we need in the world that we wouldn't be able to do alone. And once I embraced it, there's a lot less taxing of myself emotionally because I'm not bothering to resist. I'm looking at every moment as how can I express my leadership? How can I express my voice in this circumstance? Sometimes that's being the one at the front of the room, so to speak. Other times it's chiming in with what I see from the side of the room. And sometimes it's stepping back and holding space for others where I'm not speaking at all. I'm right. holding space for them to take their turn. It sounds like perhaps that reluctance was was maybe tied to that third piece. It was tied to allowing others and 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 seeing the the leadership that others had, but not wanting to necessarily see it in yourself. But it sounds like that last piece, uh, allowing others to speak, maybe or allowing others to lead. Or, or at least feeling like you're allowing others to lead, maybe took up a little more prominence um, prior to kind of that uh, acceptance. And I'm also curious, just was that acceptance gradual or was it like a switch flipped? If we look at my whole life, it was gradual because sure. I, was, I was continually stepping into the opportunities to lead and kind of going from that reluctance to courageous leader over time. And then there was about a two week period with that coach who noticed, oh, you're a reluctant leader. She gave me an exercise to do to kind of release the part of me that was reluctant and define what leadership meant to me, starting with one, you know, I held the word reluctant and then went, okay, if I'm releasing reluctant, then what am I embracing? I embraced courageous. And then I remember the exercise was to start with the one seed word and then kind of expand more writing, more talking. What does that mean and how does it show up? Yeah, I, 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 I definitely, it feels like there was a path that maybe just felt like it was not there before. And, and your coach opened this path. And then as soon as you saw it, it was like, oh, there's so much opportunity there. And yeah. I can go and I can still be myself and I can still uh, be the leader that I reluctantly am, but I don't have to be reluctant because it's opened up in a way that makes sense to me cognitively. Yeah. Yeah. And I went through a leadership program shortly after that point, because then I was, I was hungry for it. And the leadership yeah. program was about being you hmm. and leading from there. Whoever you are, there is an innate right. style of leadership that you have. Mm. And I love that. That's, you know, that's what I'm all about in terms of speakers and leaders myself now. And the more challenges that come up in the world, including COVID, uh, when COVID hit, I felt this strong, intuitive call to kind of come back to home and what mm. was really important to me that we need more courageous leaders, that everyone has presence and presence begins where primal and purpose meet. And then to do my part to help call forth more of the reluctant leaders out there 
into defining what leadership means to them and speaking more and sharing their medicine or their wisdom with the world. How did that look, um, especially for folks who who struggle with that, to go to to try to start learning how to do that, or or if they were already working with you, continue to work on that when it felt like the opportunities to do so were were changing and or perhaps not even going to be there um, for them to kind of perfect that. What is, how did that look for you, uh, both as a coach and just from a business perspective? Yeah, initially. It was like the whole world froze. Uh, And I was fortunate at the time I had enough corporate things to kind of get me through when there was absolutely no activity and the whole world was kind of on pause. And then some people started coming out of the woodwork and because they were stuck in their houses, there was a wave of people, people for whom it felt like a perfect time to take a class on Zoom. Because yeah. I'm stuck here in my house. I can't go outside. Might as well take this program. And then there was a bit of another dip. And I still haven't deciphered what the other dip was. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you know when I do. <laughs> uh, and people, ha- you know, a lot of things moved to Zoom or WebEx or all of the other platforms, you know, whole conferences that used okay. to be in person have moved on to Zoom. So then some of the people who really wanted to get their message out there were aware, oh, I need to learn how to to do this on a camera. And many of the classes in 2021, the programs that I've led, we've been taught, we've been doing them on Zoom and discussing things that are specific to Zoom. Like how do you convert techniques that I'm sharing? Yeah onto Zoom and then how is it gonna show up when you're back out live in an audience? And some, even as early as April, we're going back out into live experiences. And one client even did a blended experience where there was a camera and a live, a live set of people in the room with her at the same time. So they'll go do the experience and then kind of come back and either share a video or talk about how it went. And a lot of times I can read in their bodies, in their breath and in their energy as they're talking about it. I almost don't even need to see the video because our bodies tend to recreate what happened during a story as we're telling the story. Yeah. Bodies, our bodies give away uh, the feeling, right? Um, yeah. in, in so many uh, ways. I'm curious what what if there was anything that specifically stood out about differing skills or those differing techniques where you felt like, oh, I, this really does completely change if you're not in person. Um, was that was there something that stood out? The biggest one that I've noticed, um, I have a a tool set that I share with people called anchoring and including. Anchoring is connecting deeply, intimately with one person at a time, while simultaneously including the whole room. So having that energy out. It's different when we are on Zoom. Uh, It's different when we're on camera and we're still trying to include, but there's actually no one there. So if I'm shooting a video, I'm gonna look at the green light and I will ask people who are highly visual to put a picture of who is it that you're actually talking to behind the green light. I'm more visceral, so I don't need to hang a picture there. It would distract me. I absolutely imagine who is the person that I'm shooting this video for there with me. So anchoring with the green light and including energetically by including the plants, the trees, the guitars, all in the room with me. Zoom is in many ways the trickiest one, and it depends on, are you giving a talk that you want to use the video from later? Or are you leading an interactive class on Zoom? If we're leading an interactive class on Zoom, I would recommend looking at the eyes of the faces that are there on the screen which means it's gonna be too low to use later as a video that stands on its own. 
like I'm looking at your face right now and right. connecting deeply with you. And if there were 10 people here, I would be moving my anchor point from person to person. Mm-hmm. If we're trying to use it for both, I usually recommend that people keep Zoom not on full screen. So there's that row of small faces under yeah. underneath the green light. So I can look at the face right underneath the green light in the center a lot of the time, and that makes that usable. The most challenging one after people start to get it through eye contact with one, energy out to the walls, is what happens when I sign on to Zoom or WebEx and there are no faces at all. Hmm. Now that I've learned to deeply connect with each face that I'm seeing, And then I will ask people to imagine that there is a connection. It's just not coming from our eyes. Yeah. It's like, it's coming from my heart across cyberspace to your heart. And that holds true. If you're speaking in something like a Ted talk where you may not be able to see anyone at all because of the lights shining in your eyes or no one passed the first couple of rows because the lights are making it so that you can't see them that you have an umbilical cord energetic connection or a heart to heart connection. And the thing that people don't do about that anchoring piece is they'll kind of make eye contact, but they'll tap eye contact and run away. So their eyes are moving rapid fire and they're not really grounded. That's why to me, anchoring and including, it's this tool set where you have to have both at the same time in order to get the most out of the tool set. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense to me. And as someone who's definitely had my fair share of each of those, um, and, and to your point, the first time that I was speaking almost as a, it was a panel situation where I could see a couple people, but it was being broadcast live to you know, however many people um, in the university who I couldn't see. <laughs> um, and and so then it was like that balance almost of, I want to have this conversation with this person. And also I know that the audience is also needing something from me. Um, and that balance was was a little hard. It's been a little easier because I, I had a little practice, but it's, um, yeah, it, it was definitely jarring at first. Yeah. And how I discovered it was many years before I started doing this work. Um, I was in a play and two of us had a love scene and we got together the first day to rehearse this love scene. And only the director was there at first and he was sitting close to the back row and we were deeply connected to each other, the other actor and I, and we were including the director without realizing it at first. So you could hear us in the back of the theater. And then because of the way things had been scheduled, the other 23 members of the cast started arriving to rehearse the next scene. And our energy just imploded. And it was like, we are not including you because we are not ready for you to be here yet. Mm. And that seed that was planted, I paid attention to it over time. And I went, okay, what is it? Why is it that sometimes we can hear and we're compelled to listen to one speaker with a microphone right next to their face? And yet another one is wearing the same exact microphone and we swear we can't hear that person or we're not compelled to pay attention. I think it's this energy piece that they're not including us and it's how we can have our full range as a speaker yeah you know that actor and I were not shouting our love scene at each other we were speaking in very tender tones but you could hear them at the back of the theater the same is true for speakers we don't all have to shout in order to be heard in fact we don't have to shout at all in order to be heard our our instrument ourselves body mind soul will line up behind that intention that we've set. So some moments can be tender, others can be alarming to try to wake up the audience to something and everything in between. Yeah, I'm really struck by the the idea of 
even even a whisper um, on stage can be can be heard in the back row if there's if there's intentionality behind it. And I'm also thinking as a young child being in plays and and remembering what it's like for children to learn how to project versus yelling um, because it is quite different, obviously. Um, and and some of us because maybe we didn't do that as children don't learn that until much later where it is that like well I need to be loud and it's like loudness doesn't equal presence right um in fact it can then come across quite aggressive which is not what we're typically going for yeah absolutely absolutely and for some of us we can get away with the yelling which is kind of pushing from the throat yeah instead of allowing that air the breathing to do the the breathing yeah absolutely fortunately or unfortunately the way my instrument is built if I try to yell and it comes from my throat, my volume actually goes down. Yep. So I couldn't get away with it. I had to figure out how to do it a more organic, authentic way for me. And now I'm so passionate. I'm sharing it with everybody who's ever been told you're too quiet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really resonate with that too, because I feel like when I, when I get really angry and I start to yell, right. Uh, whether that's because uh, my dog has gotten into something or my, my children are, are, you know, doing something crazy or whatever. Uh, I find that my voice like completely cracks and it just does not work. Whereas if I use that more of stage presence, stage voice, that like diaphragm, that, that, that breathing piece, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely going to be, you know, when I'm when I'm not connected to that emotionality behind it, it's it's it, and I can tap into my body, it makes a world of difference. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one story, I challenged everyone on my email list to to try changing something over the holidays one year. You know, pick your favorite step on the vocal presence path and commit to practice it with your family over the holidays. And my mother was alive at the time and she was hard of hearing. She'd been wearing a hearing aid for most of her life. So she could hear, but not full hearing. And I would do that annoying thing that so many of us do when somebody says what, because they can't hear you. I caught myself straining and almost yelling at her. And I went, okay, I think this is one of those moments to do what I've asked everyone on my list to do. Yeah. And I practiced two things. I practiced intend, breathe, energize. I practiced three overachiever figured if I asked my list to pick one, I should do them all. (laughs) So I thought about, you know, what is it that I'm wanting here? Well, I'm wanting to connect. So that's my intention. Mm. Then I'm going to breathe and release that strain in my throat and send the energy out to the edges of the room. And 99 times out of a hundred, when she said what, and I just inhaled, and said it again, she could hear me the second time. And it was not noticeably louder. It was clearer, Mm. but it was not louder. And she could hear me better every time. And now I jokingly talk about the little old lady in the back of the theater was her. So if you're doing that as a speaker or an actor on a stage, that's who you're talking to. And it's not about yelling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of the theater, uh, you know, you mentioned at the very beginning, part of your bliss is also being able to kind of have these, these moments in the evenings where you get to be characters and you get to, uh, you know, still do some of that, which has been a part of your life seemingly from the beginning. Um, and, and I'm curious just, uh, in general, like how has that, how has that sustained throughout your life that, that I'm guessing there's still a deep love and a deep passion there. How has that sustained or maybe even evolved over time? Um, and then I'm curious, just like what, uh, you know, what types of characters are you drawn to if there is a, if there is a specific type? Yeah. I discovered theater at the age of seven, I think when my mother found me in the backyard with my hair up in little pin curls, uh, I had started playing the Brady Bunch with some friends who got bored because they were not actors and wanted to go swimming or bike riding or something. (laughs) And I said, okay, I'll catch up with you later. I'm going to finish the story. And she took me to an acting class. And I feel like I've spent my life identifying what is the light side of theater versus the dark side, the shadow side Mm. and surround myself with more people doing theater who are in touch with the lighter side, 
the creative side versus the the dark side of the business. Sure. And um, I acted a lot at night and was an executive assistant during the day until I was about 30 or 32, something like that. And then this voice within me wanted me to go live a more aligned life. And I said, yes. And I quit my job and I went to get a master's degree in theater. And I thought I would be teaching theater exclusively during the day and acting at night. And then this leadership public speaking call sort of adjusted my trajectory a bit. There was a five-year period where I didn't act at all. And I had never intended to take that break. Yeah. And then my mother actually passed away and I felt this, oh, wait, what am I doing? Wait a minute. <laughs> I love my business, but I don't want to only do my business. Mm. I love theater. I want a full and abundant life. So I made another kind of half turn and got realigned with that. And I love variety. I'm a character actress. Um, variety can mean like a huge leading role followed by a teeny tiny little quirky character back to back yeah. or two roles in one show. Uh, right before COVID, I spent about a year working on a devised piece called Convoy 31,000 with my theater company, Theater Lunatico in Berkeley. And we researched women of the French resistance and chose characters that we wanted to play. And I brought in both a doctor who uh, the real doctor had almost died because she refused to take part in experiments. And they said they were going to kill her for that. Um, and I also brought in a, a Nazi guard. Um, because I knew we need we need the dark side very well represented in this play in order for it to work. And she kept those two. The writer watched us improvise for months and months and then pulled together a written piece. And I played both of those characters. And it was it was amazing. You know, I would be on stage as the doctor in one moment and I would leave weeping because another character had just been killed right in front of me. And I would go backstage and change clothes in like 10 seconds flat and re-enter again as the Nazi guard. Mm. And at first that was very challenging. And then eventually I realized there's no time to be in my head. Yeah. I need to exit as one, take a deep breath, wipe the snot off of my face and walk back in as the Nazi guard. And I absolutely loved it because of how opposite they were. Um, and it's rare that those both happen in this, that that kind of, juxtaposition happens in the same play right. and I do love it you know it's all about can I be the quirky ditzy character one time and then a you know different character the next or in the same right. play yeah that variety um which I think in in speaking is also uh, at least for me has been important um to uh, whether that's if, if it's a subject matter piece it may be adding other layers to it or, or other examples or things that I they don't use every single time or maybe I start in a different place than I would normally or something like that like the variety piece uh, it really resonates with me as well uh, I'm also curious if there's ever been uh you know times where uh, I'm sure times have been tough but so I don't mean it exactly like that but more that um have there been characters where you where you really struggled to um, either embody or struggle to feel like it was kind of the best fit for you? Mm. Fortunately, not in a while. Um, when I was younger, as I was finding my way through the light, light side and the shadow side of theater, I thought I wanted this kind of, this kind of success. Mm. I want to be booked back to back to back and overlapping like all of the men are. Mm. Because particularly when I was in my twenties, there were a lot more roles for the men sure. and a lot more females trying to get the roles. So yeah. I reached that level of success. I was booked overlapping and back to back to back for about a year and a half. I spent a lot of it sick. Uh, and I looked back 
on the last one. And I thought, wow, I'm pretty sure these are like the 10 worst acting jobs I've ever done. And redefined, okay, what is my definition of success now? Because I don't like this one that I thought we're all supposed to be going for. And now (laughs) there's space in between the roles that I do at least a couple of weeks, sometimes a whole year. And there is always a moment I'll take the role or the understudy job. Um, I took a couple of understudy gigs where people thought I was crazy because I was understudying the lead. I'll take it. I'll be thrilled. And then as my fiance pointed out to me a couple of years after we started living together, then there's the meltdown. Then there's the moment where I don't think I can do it. And it's, I've actually embraced it since he pointed it out. It's part of my creative process to have at least one day where I really don't know how I'm going to do this character. And sometimes the meltdown is just like five minutes and then I'll sit back up with utter clarity and I'll know the next step forward. When I look back on that year and a half, that was horrible acting in my twenties. I never stopped and had a moment of now that I've got the role, how am I going to do it in a way that I'm proud of that feels vibrant and alive and creative to me? Yeah. So it is a part of my process to have a little bit of a like, how am I going to get it done? Meltdown and go through it and then snap out the other side and create something that I'm usually very, very proud of. That it reminds me so strongly of a friend I had in college who uh, was a straight A student, per- like perfect, you know, 100% on pretty much everything. She, she would do, she was like, she was a chemistry major. She would do things in organic chemistry. She would get, she would, you know, if they had a curve, she would completely wreck it because she would get a hundred. And every night before the exams, she was an absolute wreck. And a lot of people would be like, what are you talking about? Like, you are so good at this. You've never had a bad exam. And, and to me, I think like looking back now at, with, with, with what you've just said, I'm like, oh, this is just part of her processing. Like part of her processing is, is I'm going to have a meltdown about this. I'm going to, uh, you know, maybe maybe feel some imposter syndrome or, or whatever's kind of going on in that moment. And 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 as you're saying that, I'm like, oh, that that's really speaking to. Oh, I've I've seen that in action, and I never, uh, I, I I never knew the words. I know she didn't know the words, but that's that's really fascinating. Yeah. Yep. Part of the creative process and opening into it rather than trying to pretend I'm fine. Right is really key. And I think coming back to the process in general, when you talked about kind of that shift, it it goes all the way back to what you've been talking about from the beginning, which is reframing that intentionality. And once you were able to do that for yourself, whether that was conscious at the time when you first started learning that or not, once you started to do that for yourself, you were able to say, well, I can be conscious about how I do this, when I do this, uh, with whom I'm doing this, rather than I, I have this intentionality that didn't work um, and I'm just going to give up or I'm just going to, to, to do this or I'm just going to stay the path because, you know, I deserve to stay the path because that's what the men would do, right? It was, no, I'm going to find what works for me and reframe that intention. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And I don't think I've ever really put that together in that way before, um, which is why when I discovered coaching, it felt like I was coming home to yeah. something. Because they were putting words to things that had worked for me, but I hadn't put it together. Um, Even when I was auditioning in my 20s, I remember when you go to audition, you, 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 the timer doesn't start until you're finished with your introduction. (laughs) So I will tell other actors now, and I then would take a breath and connect to something that I loved about acting. And it was almost like leaping off of a diving board into a pool. When I had the moment where I was actually connected to what I love about acting, that's when I would inhale and start talking, knowing that they would start the timer then. 
I never walked in and stood there for like 10 minutes, but I was kind of trying to give myself the permission when I'm having a thought of like, oh my God, I'm going to blow this. Look who's sitting there. I've always screwed it up in front of it. Don't start when you're in that mode. Yeah. Connect to what do you love and then open your mouth and start then. So that intention and what are my values that I'm expressing has been there, even though I didn't have the words for it at the time. Well, and, and the breathing piece comes into play there too, because you are taking that moment to kind of center yourself and, and into your body and like, okay, now I can, now I can start. Um, yeah. So uh, as we're wrapping up, boy, that was a quick hour. Um, <laughs> I feel like we, uh, we could keep going for, for hours on this. I, I, I'm just loving this conversation, but as we're wrapping up here, um, just if you, you've given, I think a lot of good advice and a lot of good life experience to, to folks who are trying to maybe find their voice, but if you had to boil down just some, some advice on where to start, how do you, how do you start finding that voice and, and how do you, how do you start pursuing that as, as a way also for you to find bliss? Um, if, if you're someone who, who doesn't know really how to get there yet. I think you're kind of segueing us here, um, beautifully. One place to start is to identify what are your personal values. They're like fingerprints. So my values are not the same as yours. They're different from morals or ethics. They're unique to each person. And a couple of ways to excavate them. Hiring a coach is a great way because then you have help who's kind of mirroring back to you. And before you even have a coach, noticing what is it that you love about the things that you love? And then sometimes what are your pet peeves is another great way because if something is a pet peeve, it's because a value may not be being honored in whatever it is that is a pet peeve for you. Or um, there's something, there's a clue to what, what you're here to do. If you're going to be on a mission on this planet, a pet peeve is often something that you see that needs to change in the world. And you have some of the answers or at least the hunger to change it. Um, hungers are another one, particularly now that I'm surrounded by coaches and people doing personal development work. There are people out there who start to feel like there's a purpose pressure. You're supposed to have it all figured out. Uh, we're here to live out our life purpose, not to figure it out. And by paying attention to the hunger for something more or the hunger for something different, those things combined, the, you know, what do I love and why, what are my pet peeves and what am I hungry for are huge clues to values and to each of our unique path to living out our life purpose. I love the idea behind the hunger and behind the like living instead of just kind of uh, it's almost back to like kind of the cliche, like living instead of existing. But I, but I do believe that it is, it is really finding that passion, finding that thing that's going to give you that bliss um, and that joy. And, and how do you, how do you kind of continue to manifest that? And even if it's, it's some, if it's in something that you don't feel great at, or don't feel like you will, uh, you know, have experience in, if it's something that you have that hunger for, or you have that hunger to share something with someone, well, then how do you, how do you do that? And, and I think that there's so many ways, but I, but I agree. I think one of the, one of the best ways is to, is to have someone help you identify those and, and, and find those values with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the last question is just, what would you like to promote? Ah, I would love to promote my compelling speaker program. The next one is taking place this fall, 2021, um, starting in late September or early October. I think the best way to connect with that is to go to my website, www.voice-matters.com and book a breakthrough session with me and we can explore compelling speaker or other options as a possibility. 
Awesome. We'll make sure that gets in the show notes. And I know a few people already that I can send your way. So I'll definitely be doing that. Um, Lori, it's been an absolute pleasure for me. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm glad we were uh, finally able to do this. And um, yeah, I, I just uh, so appreciate uh, to go back to the energy piece. I sh- so appreciate your energy and um, and the time that you were willing to give to uh, to this interview. Thank you so much. I have had an amazing time with you as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And we'll see everybody next time on What's Your Bliss. You can find What's Your Bliss at anythingbutcredible.com and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. Please follow on Twitter and Instagram at Your Bliss Pod and like What's Your Bliss on Facebook. If you have any questions for me, or if you'd like to be a guest or advertise on the podcast, please email me at yourblisspodcast at gmail.com. Please check out anythingbutcredible.com to find all the additional awesome content and podcasts, including Offended, Movie Merge, Going Off Topic, and of course, the Anything But Credible podcast. Podcast.